Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Media Network. In the old days, a lot of the recording was done by nefarious people who decided to put print them on vinyl and sell them in record stores and, and the artists got nothing. I mean, that's to me, that's the old traditional bootleg. And, you know, I don't really use the word because it, it connotates, you know, illegal activity and ripping off artists, which is exactly the opposite of what we tried to do with NYC Taper. You know, and, and some of that colored the way tapers have been viewed historically. You know, what are you doing? You're recording the show, you're ripping off the artist, you know, and it's and I've always tried to make it clear that, first of all, we're not selling it. Second of all, we're not trying to rip them off. We're trying to spread their fan base. And like you said before, we're trying to give people who've gone to this concert, enjoyed it, a permanent memento of, of something that's important to them. You know, not only is it good for the fan base, it's good for the artists and, and many artists. I mean, the people Welcome concert goers, music fanatics, and audience tapers. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this encore episode of Yesterday's Concert, NYC Taper opens his jam journal to set the record straight about bootlegging. Grab your earplugs as we hit record on our favorite shows. I am here with Dan, a.k.a. NYC Taper. And we're going to be talking about bootlegging, also more affectionately known as audience taping uh, today. And so, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Glad to have you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Good deal. Well, like I start most of these shows, we're going to start with just some rapid fire Q&A to, quote unquote, establish some credibility. So, Dan, first question for you. What was the first show you ever taped? 
Uh, I think it's a 1994 Grateful Dead show at NASA Coliseum. That would be March of 1994. How many tapes do you estimate you've made in your career? Uh, probably about a thousand. Good gosh. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. That's an actual number. <laughs> How many concerts do you think you've been to? Uh, actual concerts that I've been to? I'd say it's probably about 3,000. That's my guess. Oh my gosh. You're putting me to shame, man. All right. So uh, what artists have you taped the most? Uh, the artist I've taped the most is probably Wilco, I guess. Ah, yeah, okay. There's probably about 40 Wilco recordings that I've made. Awesome. When was the first Wilco show you taped? Uh, the first one I taped was 1997 at Irving Plaza, February 15th, I believe is the date. That's very, when was the last one you taped? Uh, last one was at Brooklyn Steel. I think it was October of 2019. All right. So do you tape every show you attend? No, definitely not. Well, uh, what band do you wish was taper friendly that is not taper friendly? Uh, good question. Um, you know what's weird about that question? And, uh, and I, I know this is a rapid fire, but it's hard to explain is that I almost sort of like bands or spend, spend more time paying attention to bands that do like and do appreciate taping. Mm -hmm. So it almost affects my fanhood. So, I mean, I guess if, if you'd have to say, uh, who do I wish was taper friendly that isn't, I, I, man, it's hard to say, honestly, I, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm sorry. I totally understand. I totally understand. Okay. So last rapid fire, somebody gives you a time machine. You can go back and tape any show in history that you want. What do you tape? Uh, it would be a grateful dead show from like 1972, probably. Oh, uh, that's yeah. a good period. Yeah. And we're going to get along great. I love the dead as well. So this is going to be fantastic. So, okay. So let's go back to the very beginning of you and who you are. When did music become a thing for you? Okay. Music became a thing for me when I was really small. I mean, I'm talking like four or five years old. I am uh, the youngest of seven children. Uh, I have a brother who is 14 years older than me. I had brothers who collected albums like in the 1960s. So I remember as a very small child, my brothers having Sgt. Peppers, having Zappa albums, having, you know, albums from like the, the big artists in like the late 60s. So that would be like the effect on me would be that stuff. And so it was more sort of like my brothers and, and older sisters and what they were listening to, um, you know, Beatles, obviously, uh, Rolling Stones. All, all of the, the best music of that period. So was it a, was it a musical family or just music fans? Uh, ironically enough, uh, nobody, well, actually, let me, let me take that back. One of my brothers is proficient at, at instruments, but he never plays in public. None of us were, were, were artists or, or performers, but we were very musical in terms of like fandom. Let's put it that way. So what was your first concert that you intended with this musical fandom? My first concert was uh, November of 1977. I went to see Jethro Tull at Madison Square Garden. I was 14 years old. What do you remember about that show? What was, what was special about <laughs> it? <laughs> what I remember about that show is there was a guy, while we were waiting online to get in, like, you know, we had tickets in advance. It was my sister and I, honestly. And while we were waiting online to get in, um, there was a guy walking up and down the line selling drugs, literally openly <laughs> selling drugs. And I, I remember him saying Black Beauties. And I had 
I was 14 years old. I had no idea what a black beauty is. In fact, I'm, I'm not even sure that they that, that that's really a term that's used anymore. But I remember the guy selling black beauties. The other thing I remember is at the end of the show, when we got up to leave, we were walking out and there was somebody in their seat asleep. Like, obviously oh, not asleep, like yeah. boat dozing out, but passed out. And that yeah. was like something I couldn't even fathom. So, you know, you can imagine it's, I, I was from Long Island. It was a bit of a culture shock to go into sure. New York City as a 14-year-old and go to see Jethro Tull at Madison Square Garden. A fantastic concert. Never forget the concert. But those sort of weird, like, cultural sh- culture shock incidents are the kinds of things that I remember the most about that. So, obviously, 3,000 shows later, it didn't do too much to detriment. It didn't do too much to detriment you then. No, no. I mean, it, 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 one of the things, one of the positive aspects of that is this sort of collective mindset, collective consciousness of this one event, one performer on stage, and you know, this sort of um, crowd energy, and that kind of took me from the very outset. Like live music is just something that is created at in the moment. And, you know, you know, from from the stuff that I record, a lot of the music that I record is not pre-recorded. It's not a lot of it is just played in the moment. Set lists are not, you know, the same every night, um, that kind of music. And so it, some of the things, the positive parts of that experience were that was that I could feel an energy in the crowd that you can't get anywhere else. And I think that's the thing that most attracted me to go into concerts. And I, you know, I continued to go to concerts even thereafter. You know, um, when I was 15 and 16, et cetera. So did that kind of, was that a big starting point for you? Did that really light a fire in you or was it another year? Or how long? Um, I, my next concert is another story that you don't have time for. It was <laughs> Jerry Garcia, Jerry Garcia band at the Suffolk Forum in March of 1978. The Suffolk uh, Forum or the Comac Arena is out, out like Eastern Long Island. Yeah. And that was an experience that that um, there's a lot to talk about, but we can move on from that. But again, collective sort of like crowd energy, just, you know, creation of art in the moment, that kind of thing always attracted. So were you a deadhead headed into that show or were you just kind of testing the water, seeing things? At, at that point, I I wasn't I wouldn't say I was a deadhead. I had probably, you know, five or six of their albums and a couple of tapes that I recorded off the radio, that kind of thing. So it wasn't like. I was deep into it, but I knew enough so that like I knew most of the songs. Let's put it that way. Yeah, for sure. So what was the first tape that you got your hands on that, that really started this? As a New Yorker or, you know, Long Islander with access to New York culture, um, the radio in New York was, was very uh, good for concerts around that time period, late seventies, early eighties. So there was a WNEW in, um, in New York City, and there was WLIR uh, in um, on Long Island, and they used to regularly play concerts on the radio. So I would tape them, cassette tapes, just tape them off the radio. And some of that stuff is still around, and I, you know, you can find it, uh, you know, somewhere downloaded somewhere off the internet. It's just fantastic music. WLIR had this thing where they would have people in the studio. I think they call it the Ultrasonic Studios. You should look for some of these recordings. It's like Jackson Brown, Little Feet, people like that. Um, just playing in their studios and the, they put the recordings out and they're, they're terrific. So did you, is that what really launched you into being a taper or was that, did you have a mentor and somebody that guided you? How did you get into it? I was a, uh, I was in radio in college. I uh, was a communications uh, major 
a mass media major and I was on the radio station. Um, so I had some experience in terms of like recording things like in the, in the field, we did some field recording and, um, you know, I got to know how to do like tape back, back then everything was on tape, nothing was digital. So I got to, you know, know how to do real splicing, you know, tape splicing so that you were able to kind of, um, you know, have a, just a, what's now done digitally, I was able to do, you know, analog wise. So I got to know a lot of the things that I currently use back when I was in college studying, um, you know, mass media. Well, if you didn't tape your first show until 94, but you were going to concerts all in the eighties, what took you so long to get there? Let's see. I mean, I was going to shows in the eighties, mostly club shows. And I remember seeing people tape them, but I just, I don't know. It just never crossed my mind to, to, to go and, and start recording stuff until a little bit later on when I realized that I needed to capture some of this stuff. And um, it was also the, um, the beginning of the debt era, the digital audio tape era, where you could get a digital audio recorder that was, you know, the size of a, of a Walkman, so to speak. Um, and that's really what, what allowed me to go ahead and do it. I was never a cassette, like a live cassette tape guy. I never did it. I mean, you, you're talking about the need to capture. What was that need to capture that you were talking about? I, you know, in, in the '90s, there wasn't really much in the way of of the of the sort of traditional FM radio of the '60s, '70s, and, and early '80s. So you would, couldn't really record shows off the air anymore. Um, and I felt like I needed to capture some of the some of the shows that I was going to. So it wasn't just Grateful Dead. I mean, like I said, I recorded Wilco in the 90s. I remember Jonathan Richmond, Robin Hitchcock, people like that. Small club shows in New York that were, you know, no one was capturing them. No one was recording them. And, and I wanted to, you know, be able to relive that experience. So once the, once the ability to tape digitally became available in a, in a compact way, I started to buy little microphones, big microphones. And then I started to do, whole bunch more stuff so i taped pretty regularly from like the in 94 95 96 uh i was taping a lot up until 1999 when uh my wife and i had some children and then i started to have other priorities well did you see yourself as a music historian in feeling the need to record those shows no i mean that i i think that's i think that's uh, kind of a high Pollutant kind of description of what I was doing at that point. I was also trading with people from other cities. I mean, I had a whole, there's a whole network of people trading dad tapes and a lot of them were taping shows in their own towns. So I was getting recordings of, of musicians that I liked from, you know, a variety of different cities across the country and even some internationally. Um, and that wasn't, it wasn't really that I was doing it to sort of be an archivist. It was more sort of just to be able to listen to stuff that I liked. So do you think the, the concert tape is the ultimate memento from a show then? Well, I mean, I do watch a lot of streaming uh, stuff on, on YouTube and other various streaming outlets. So, I mean, these days it's, it's you know, audio and video. But, I mean, there's nothing that, that beats, you know, playing a live recording while you're, you know, on your headphones or in your car or in your stereo in your in your living room or whatever. So I guess it still is. But I mean, I'm, I've come around to really enjoying, um, you know, uh, live live streaming or even recorded uh, uh, audio, a video recording of shows. Professionally done. Uh, professionally done. Sure. Uh, the stuff that's just one camera on on the performer for the entire show to me is pretty, it's pretty unwatchable. Yes, I agree. To be with you. 
Well, that's, I, and I mean, I think I mean like, you know, you can buy a band t-shirt or you can buy a lot of bands have the posters for event shows for shows now, but you know, to have the tape of a show, you get to live that show f- forever until the files yeah. are deleted. I mean, to yeah. me, that's the ultimate form of walking away from a show is to have the actual show forever. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, the odd part, and I, I totally agree with you. I well said, totally agree with you. But the odd part about that is, is the, that business model has never worked. People have always, uh, it, there's been a whole series of, and I followed this because it was sort of concurrent with the NYC taper is that um, the, you know, recorded today or, you know, get the show that night, you know, on a thumb drive or whatever there's been a whole series of different companies that have tried to do that. And none of them, none of it has, has, has worked. I mean, big bands do it. I mean, fish does it. Um, you know, some of the other bigger bands do it, but even Wilco has kind of stopped doing that. Um, and so it's not really something that I think is a viable business model, but I, I think that it should be. Yeah, <laughs> it should be that people, people should want a souvenir, but you know, if, if, 10,000 people go to a concert. How many of them really want to relive it forever? You know, is it 10% of the crowd? I don't know. Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. Why don't you think more bands are doing that? I mean, do you think if more people are aware of this kind of thing that it might catch on more? I mean, if you had people like Harry Styles and Britney, I don't know whoever's popular these days, but I mean, if you think that would change things? Well, I mean, you're getting, when you're getting into pop performance, you're getting into shows that every show is the same and a lot of it's pre-recorded so that that doesn't really apply um and some of it with with that kind of stuff look i have two daughters so i know like, <laughs> going to pop shows as teenagers it's not about the archive it's the it's about the, the experience in the moment sure um but i think part of the reason that the bands don't do that is that there just isn't enough of a demand for it mm-hmm. um i remember we did a uh, guided by voices did it for a little bit and we recorded one of their shows. It was in Brooklyn uh, at the McCarran Park. And we did a fantastic job. It wasn't just me. It was like three of us together doing all the like multiple microphones and mixes and stuff. And it's fantastic recording. And it got put up on their website, you know, as a buy this. It was like a week later, buy this show. And, and, and you know, you, you have a permanent memento of this terrific show. And I remember like asking them for the download numbers and it was literally less than like 20 people. And I was wow. like, what? <laughs> well, I think because people want to, they want to download it for free. They don't want to pay for it, but it wasn't even that expensive. It was like 15 bucks or something. But, you know, in that sense, I think part of it is that there just isn't enough of a demand for, for it in terms of a pay, you know, pay per show thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, I think some of my question is, why don't you think more bands are taper friendly? I mean, what is, I mean, it's like Jerry Garcia said, once the show's done, they're done with it. They have nothing else from it. I mean, why wouldn't more bands be open to having tapers? Well, you know, as I've asked hundreds of bands to record them and, you know, we get told no quite a bit and there's a variety of reasons for it. Um, One is that, you know, people still are, you know, old school bands kind of still afraid of the whole, you know, the big bad uh, bootlegging, you know, people ripping them off and selling it or whatever. And, you know, I don't think that's realistic at this point. There's no, there's no real bootleg industry where people sell um, live well, recording. Can we pause right but, there? Yep. 
Can you pause right there and kind of sure. distinguish the difference between bootlegging and audience taping? Because I think that's oh, a big okay. misconception. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the old days, a lot of the recording was done by nefarious people who decided to put print them on vinyl and sell them in record stores, and and the artists got nothing. I mean, that's to me, that's the old traditional bootleg, and you know, I don't really use the word, yeah, because it it connotates you know illegal activity and ripping off artists, which is exactly the opposite of what we tried to do with NYC Taper. Um, you know, and, and some of that, I think, colored the way tapers have been viewed historically. You know, what are you doing? You're recording the show, you're ripping off the artist, you know, and it's and I've always tried to make it clear that it, we're not trying. To, first of all, we're not selling it. Second of all, we're not trying to rip them off. We're trying to spread their fan base. We're trying to give the people who own every album something else to listen to. And like you said before, we're trying to give people who've gone to this concert, enjoyed it. Uh, a permanent memento of, of something that's important to them. And I think that, you know, not only is it good for the fan base, it's good for the artists. And, and many artists, I mean, the people who want us to record their shows get that. Um, you know, there's a lot of artists that reach out to us and say, you know, please come and record the show. And so it's just like, okay, you get it. We'll do it. Well, so, and that's, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. no, I, I'm sorry. I interrupt to you. I was just going to say, to me, it's confusing because, you know, I, I saw Harry Styles on tour last fall and there was not a song or a moment of that show where people weren't holding their phone up and recording it. Mm. And when I get on YouTube now, I mean, there's there's hundreds, if not thousands of videos from that show available. Yeah. Eliminating that is not is not really enforceable. Yeah. And, you know, a five minute clip of Harry Styles from, you know, Section 205 you know, shaky thing doesn't doesn't really substitute for, you know, when it when Harry Styles decides to release, a, you know, a live uh, DVD or, or, or streaming concert for, sure. for, you know, to buy. But, you know, and a lot of that, like I said, is unenforceable. You can't really go on YouTube and ask, you know, take down notices of 100 different videos of five minutes of, you know, shaky performance. But anyway, so, I mean, I feel like, and the other thing is, you know, musically, and, and you'll see this from the, the, the bands that we have on the website, it's mostly people who, who do improvise, who are playing different shows every night, who are, you know, taking, taking risks. And a lot of ways, those are the bands that like to be taped because those are specific moments that are never going to happen again, you know? And so if a, if a band is playing mostly the same show every night, they're probably not going to be in favor of taping because there's nothing, you know, from one show to the next, you really can't distinguish. Well, and that's one thing when I was perusing your site, I noticed you have one of my favorite artists. You have several Chris Forsyth tapes on your, your site. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, this, uh, he plays, I mean, his shows are basically all improv. I mean, there's very little structure. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that that's part of what the, the sort of overall appearance is, but, those jams are pretty well structured. Mm. Um, and, you know, Chris is a really smart guy, really like in tune with things. And, and, you know, he's a little bit older. He's not, he's not, you know, as old as I am, but I think he's understood from the very outset what we were about. And that's why we have such a good relationship with him is because he understands that, yes, we're here to support you, not to, we're not, you know, nobody's, Nobody's trying to rip you off. And, you know, that's the kind of guy who is perfect for our website because not only is he a terrific musician, a terrific guy, but also somebody who plays a different show virtually every night. So we're capturing something 
that is real in that moment. And you can always go back and listen to it. And Chris has used some of our recordings to put up on his band camp to be sold to get him some money. So, I mean, that's, that it's, it's been a very, very beneficial symbiotic relationship. And, and that's kind of the, the model of the kind of artists we like to, to profile on the website. Do you have a lot of bands, artists reaching out to you, asking you to come tape their shows? A lot is a, no, it used <laughs> to be more. I mean, as you can see from the website, things have slowed down. I mean, mm. even pre COVID, we, there was a, there was a year where it was just Jonas and I, and we taped something like 200 shows uh, in one year um, between the two of us. And, and then I think in night, 2018, 2019, those numbers have gone down, you know, because life gets in the way and things change and get a little older. And, you know, I mean, I don't know how many shows I can record <laughs> at this point every year. I can't, I can't do hundred or 150 shows every year anymore. Not, it's not physically possible. Well, and I think you're you're discounting taping is a lot of work. I mean, aside from getting yeah, oh, into the venue, yeah. setting up, yeah. and then all of the post efforts, it is a lot of work to get a tape done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, the, carrying my equipment, you know, on my back for, you know, 10 blocks after I've taken a subway, you know, et cetera. I mean, I, those those days are were not easy. But, you know, once you get inside, you get set up. And, some nice person says, Hey, you're an NYC table. Let me buy you a beer, you know? And then, and then suddenly, you know, the music starts and you're inside of it. And, and now the end of the show happens and you've got this, you know, amazing capture of something that, you know, is, is never going to be done again. I mean, it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of work. It is very clearly a lot of work, but most times, more times than not, it's, it's abundantly worth it. Well, what, what goes into making, what makes a good tape good? Uh, well, it's like they talk about real estate, location, location, location. Um, choosing the right equipment in the right scenario, you know, just the lack of people bumping into your microphones, the lack of people talking around your microphones, uh, a well-mixed show by a talented, um, you know, sound engineer, uh, and then, you know, like you, like you also mentioned before, once the show's over, it isn't magically up on the website. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done in front of a laptop. So, you know, some of it is post-production, but you can't post-produce something that isn't recorded well into, into something that's great. You know, you have to, it has, there has to be, you know, good raw ingredients there. And like I said, it's, it's mostly room mix, using the right microphones, uh, placing yourself in the right position. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated group of factors, but one of the good things about taping in a lot of the different, a lot of the same venues over and over again is that, you know, which mics to use, where to, where to set up, you know, and, and take it from there. Well, so what makes a room bad then? I mean, I'm sure if you have good rooms, there has to be bad rooms. What makes a room bad? Eh, bad acoustics, uh, poorly mixed. I mean, that's, that's really what it boils down to. Hmm. Um, not every sound engineer is created equal. Uh, we've had the incredible fortune of recording shows made by a whole bunch of engineers in New York that are extremely talented and have done terrific jobs. I mean, like Bowery Ballroom, for example. I mean, first couple of recordings I made in there, I didn't really set up in the right location. And then ultimately we found the right spot and they've had a series of, 
of people working there that were just terrific. I mean, not only were they terrific in terms of just being nice to us and, you know, giving us, uh, you know, the things that we needed, um, but also just mixing the room, you know, really fantastic. So that that's a place. If you go up on the website and you pull down anything recorded in Bowery Ballroom from, let's say, 2009 on, you're going to get something that sounds amazing. And most of the, most of the time it's not us. It's, it's the, it's the room done by the professional sound engineer. That's, I was having a conversation with the taper last night and we were just discussing the, the, the tribulation, the tribulations of getting gear into a venue. A lot of times <laughs> with a venue like that, do they know you well enough to say, Oh, he's going to tape. He's fine. He's good to come in. Yeah. Or do you still face that kind of that scrutiny? It, the larger the room, the more scrutiny you get, you know, I have stories. Um, but in a place like that, where I've been there so many times, um, you know, the staff will just be, Oh, Hey, how are you? How's it going? You know, what's, you know, sometimes I've got personal relationships with these people talk about, you know, how's your wife doing all that kind of stuff. Some of the places I can get in early. Um, I can get in before the, the crowd is allowed in so I can set up in my spot and, you know, not have to deal with, you know, elbowing people out of where I'm supposed to set up and, you know, but the larger the rooms are, um, the more complicated it gets. Uh, and, and in terms of how well does the band and their production staff, um, inform the venue, that's another thing. Um, a lot of times I will, the larger rooms, if I, if I know who to speak to, I'll send an email out and give them a heads up. Um, and that definitely greases the, 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 makes it easier to get inside, grease the wheels of, you know, of entering the venue. But, you know, like Madison Square Garden, for instance, I, my last show that I recorded was uh, like a week and a half ago. I did one of the fish shows, two of the fish shows. But, nice. Um, the first night, I was the first of four nights. I was there the first night and this, the, the security guy was like, what are, you, what are you doing? What is this stuff? And I'm like, what do you mean? What is this stuff? <laughs> it's, like, it's fish. It's like literally have a, I literally have a taper ticket. It's yeah. literally a taper ticket. So then he calls the surprise. The surprise comes over. Yeah, there's a tapers. Let him go. Let him go. So it's, you know, it's certain, you know, it's, a, it's, if, if people are, a lot of the times it's, it's doing the work in advance, doing the legwork, talking to the staff, making sure production knows we're there. And some places in New York, they'll even put it on the production schedule. NYC taper is going to be here. Wow. You know, I mean, it's good for the venues too. I think that's the other thing is that the venues themselves uh, particularly like a place like Bowery Ballroom where the sound is so good. I think that whatever small bit of promotion we've done for their sound, I think has, has helped the venue, I think. And, and I, I've had conversations with people who work in different venues who said, yeah, I mean, you, we, we're happy you're here because you're making us look good. Sure. You know? No, I mean, that's, I, I have not done near as many concerts as you, but I, I do get asked often, you know, do you prefer to be up close or do you, where do you like to sit at shows? And I say, where it sounds good. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really big, especially when you get into arena shows. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's only a handful of pockets in an arena that's going to sound good. And, you know, that's, that's the sweet spot, not being front row a lot of times. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've done stealth recordings over the years. I don't really do many of them anymore, but I remember doing a stealth recording at Radio City Music Hall and I was in like the fourth row. <laughs> I couldn't hear it. Oh gosh. <laughs> I was underneath yeah. the PA. So all I could hear were the monitors from the stage and the recording is honestly, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, but it's, it's, you know, very clearly not what it should be. And I've recorded stealth in that room before where I was like 25 rows back in center and it's fantastic. So, you know, 
location again important well that's it's interesting you say that because uh, about a month or so ago i was going to see goose at a uh, brooklyn bowl nashville mm-hmm. and i had i had messed up my ankle and i was in a walking boot and when i walked in they said can we take you to ada and i said sure let's go so the ada was in like a like a in the eagle's nest crow's nest whatever on top of the stage essentially so i mean i was equal to the drummer and it sounded awful but it was, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yep. It, I mean, it yep. was really cool to be able to just look down and see the musicians and see their inner workings, but it sounded terrible. And I had to go back and listen to the tape to even hear the show, really. I've, I've never been to Brooklyn Bowl in Nashville, but the Brooklyn, the original Brooklyn Bowl in, in, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. where I've recorded probably 30 times, maybe yeah. estimate. Um, there is like a crow's nest up there. I know exactly the, what you're talking about. Yeah. It's probably the same way. Um, so yeah, that would, that would not be a good place to record a show. No, absolutely not. <laughs> so something you touched on earlier, and I want to go back and talk about a little more is, do you think taping is, is fading away, especially with the rise in YouTube and everybody has a phone in their pocket now? I mean, even since I started getting into taper shows around 2005, 2006, I have noticed a decline in the amount of tapes popping up. Do you think it's on the decline? Yeah, Absolutely. It's, it's, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm part of the taper section forum. Um, it's, uh, it's like it's tapersection.com. It's the, it's the biggest taper forum uh, on the internet. And it used to be a lot more active, um, you know, and obviously the last two years have been kind of unique in that regard. But I mean, even before that, even like 17, 18, 19, there were just fewer tapers because I think, I, I mean, like you said, there's, there's a whole bunch of different ways to experience the show i don't think there's ever going to be a way that's as good as a full audio recording done correctly but i guess it's just, and it's you know it's hard to do yeah. <laughs> like you said before it's physically hard to do yeah um so i mean at, th- there's a whole series of explanations for why but uh, it's it's very clearly happened that, that there are fewer tapers now than there were let's say 10 years ago do you think it'll ever fade out of the music thing or do you think there's enough jam bands and improv bands that'll keep it alive i don't think it's ever going to be completely gone i think that the, i mean taping as a fan taping has existed for you know probably 70 80 years i mean you could find the old bluegrass tapes and field recordings from like the 40s and 50s and 60s and there, there'll always be somebody crazy like me who's willing to go drag in all this equipment and 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 capture it and you know the other thing is this new york taping has faded in in a way because new york music is faded mm. and the the heyday of nyc taper existed in large part because the brooklyn scene was such a big deal from like let's say 2006 7 to like maybe 2012 13 there was so many good bands playing in New York city at the same time that it was, I mean, I, I tape, I had nights where I taped more than one show in one night, um, multiple times. We had one night where Jonas, Eric and I were all taping a different show in a different venue in, in the city on the same night. Wow. Um, so I, I think, you know, the whole sort of quote unquote Brooklyn scene is kind of faded. Um, and it's not, it's not the same as it was 10 years ago. And that I think has affected um, at least in terms of our volume of output, but certainly the other tapers in New York 
um, who, who did similar types of shows. That's, I was having a conversation with a, an artist. He used to live in Brooklyn area. Uh, his name is Ryan Scott. I don't know if you're familiar with his work or not. Um, Sounds familiar. He, yeah. he has a great album called A Freak Grows in Brooklyn. It's worth checking out if you don't know it. Uh, but he, so I was having I was having this conversation with him just the other day about, you know, are music scenes even a thing anymore? Or has the Internet completely eliminated that? Because you can make an album from your basement in Iowa, you know, by yourself. You don't have to have fellow musicians around you. So has the, the have we passed the cultural moment of having music scenes anymore? I I mean, that's a good point. Um, but you know, that existed a lot of the, a lot of the Brooklyn scene started out as bedroom recordings. Mm. Um, and then some dude would move up from Virginia and, and start, you know, put his album out on capture tracks and rent a, you know, rent a, a, a bedroom apartment and then, you know, play a bunch of shows in the area. It's, it's shows are never going to go away. And as long as there are shows and venues to play shows in, there's always going to be a scene, whether that scene is hot or not, depends on how good the bands are ultimately um and there are cities now where the where you know there's there's great music scenes um so nashville being one of them yeah certainly yeah it's definitely uh, and i'm talking underground fucking like you know old school nashville yeah you know and this there's, there's other places there was a period when baltimore was a was a fantastic music town and boston always is a fantastic fantastic music town you know you're never gonna i don't think it's ever gonna get to that point where there's no scenes but you know they 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 they're cyclical, mm. um, you know, depending upon how good the bands are, honestly, and, and a whole bunch of other socioeconomic factors that that play into it also. And a lot of the reason why the Brooklyn scene was so hot for a while was because Brooklyn was a cheap place to live. Um, and it was a place where, you know, it was all young artists living in, you know, uh, communes or whatever, not communes, but, you know, they were living in, in the same apartment building. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, just the socioeconomic part of it. Um, but, you know, now Brooklyn's all condos, so that's not really, uh, doesn't really work that way anymore. Well, uh, Dan, as we wrap up here, tell me a little bit about NYC Taper. Tell me about the blog and what you're doing over there. Oh, well, you know what? Today is May 5th. You know what May 11th is? May 11th is the 15th anniversary of NYC Taper. What? Congrats. On May 11th, 2007, as a lark, essentially. I had recorded a show. It was Bjork at Radio City Music Hall. And I put it up on the internet. And somebody downloaded it, put it on their blog, compressed it to like shitty sounding MP3s. <laughs> and when I said, dude, like, what are you doing? You haven't given me any credit. You haven't said anything about how it was recorded. Screwed up the recording by, by, by uh, you know, like making it these, these compressed MP3s. And his response was, get your own blog. <laughs> so I said, <laughs> get my own blog so like li literally a week later i'm on uh I, you know um what, what's what's the what's my software i can't remember i've used it for 15 years a uh, wordpress so i'm on a wordpress website and i decide to open my own blog and there you go i put up the uh, first recording is sugar cubes that i recorded in in Reykjavik. it was their uh, 20th anniversary concert I flew over to Reykjavik and recorded that um, stealth, but they knew I was recording. So it wasn't like totally illegal. Like it wasn't like, you know, they, they knew it. They just couldn't give me like a spot. Sure. So I put that up. And um, in fact, I'm, I was friendly with uh, Einar, who's the male singer in Sugar Coops. And we're still Facebook friends, but this is 
16 years ago. So um, that was the first recording. And then I started recording shows. There's a Dinosaur Jr., there's a Wilco, this, and then I started to get into the sort of smaller bands, the smaller clubs, there's some stuff from Maxwell's. And then, and then it kind of grew. And the first year, I think I did 2007, there's probably 50, 40, 50 shows. 2008, there's like 80 shows. And then Jonas came aboard in 2009. And then we were doing 100, 150, 200 shows a year from like 2008 to like 2011. Um, all different venues, all different types of music. Mostly it started to become more indie stuff because that's what was there. Um, and, you know, we were doing a lot of the background stuff, just emailing people. <clears throat> and, you know, I would record like I record a built to spill show and then I gave a track to a blog and they put it up. And, you know, they put me, it was, it was sponsored by a blog. So they got me on the list. That kind of stuff happened a lot where I would be put on lists from different, um, different websites and, and share material and photos. And then I started to go to a lot of the um, DIY stuff in Brooklyn um, and doing that stuff. And so, I mean, it, it, it grew to a point where it was at one point, it was five of us recording shows, wow. all different types of music, all different types of venues. Uh, all of it taper friendly. Um, and then, you know, as things have gotten changed in terms of the, you know, the music scene and one of our guys moved away, another guy kind of dropped out. Um, so, you know, we've had a, we've had a big, uh, a, a period of time where I felt like the blog was doing, you know, yeoman's work for years, capturing, and archiving what was a pretty vibrant music scene in Brooklyn from like 2008 to like 2011, 12. And then a lot of it is just me doing what I felt like doing a band that I love somebody that I'm a big fan of or somebody. And a lot of times getting, having, having such a high profile in terms of the shows that we were recording got us in the door. A lot of cases where I didn't think it would have otherwise like Suzanne Vega allowed us to record a show in 2011 at housing works, uh, which we used as a promotion to, for people to, um, you know, give money to housing works and other charities. So we've done some of that also. There was a, um, a Japanese hurricane benefit at uh, Maxwell's with uh, Yola Tengo, which we used that recording to, to give money to Peace Winds from Japan. So I was doing some of that also. Uh, I asked uh, Glenn Tilbrook from Squeeze if I could record the show. I didn't expect it. And they said, yes. So I went to City Winery and recorded Glenn Tilbrook show, which is on the website, which is an absolutely terrific show. Great recording. Uh, couldn't have worked out better. So, I mean, it's been a whole, it, 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 there's a long story. It's 15 years worth of stuff. It's all still up there. Uh, you know, we've had our ups and downs. We got hacked once for a while. We lost some material. You know, I've had bands tell me no. I've had bands say yes, and then I put the recording up, and then they take ask me to take it down. You know, I had one one concert I went to was at Roseland. It was a the venue that doesn't exist anymore, but it was on in the fifties in Manhattan. And permission from the band, it was um, oh boy, can't remember the name of it of Montreal. So of okay. Montreal at Roseland, I set up in the middle of the room. I was all recording and everything, and all of a sudden I turn around and I'm being surrounded by um. N not exaggerating like 10 security guards oh gosh yeah yeah it was like pure like big security it was just like a union place like Roseland was like 3,000 seat place um surrounding me 
uh, literally going to start like physically removing me from the venue. Oh so finally, I'm like, no, 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 no. Here's the email. I have permission, et cetera. So, so ultimately, the head guy gets on his uh, walkie-talkie and he calls up to management. And management already knew that I was supposed to be there and I had permission and everything. So like the, the floor manager, the venue manager comes down from wherever she was set up to like unsick these guys on me. Yeah. I mean, that's like, oh my gosh. That's like the kind of you know, there's a lot of those kinds of stories. N- none of them that, that, you know, sort of scary and graphic, but, um, and then the next time we recorded off Montreal at um, Roseland was like a year or two later. Um, the, the venue felt so bad about it that they gave me my own perch. <laughs> I had my, like area to set up. I had, I literally had like an entire area That's where awesome. I could just hang out and, and, you know, just not be bothered by anyone. So, you know, it's, One of the things about it, it's been an extraordinary experience for um, getting to know some really terrific, terrific people in the New York music scene over the last 15 years. And in that sense, you know, it's it's incalculable how much how much better it has made my life in that time period. So that that to me is like, you know, what it's all about. And in that vein of the of Montreal story, since you mentioned doing some stealth taping earlier, have you ever been caught doing a stealth tape before? Yes. Yes. Can you tell me one of those stories? I was caught. Um, ironically enough, it was at the Bowery Ballroom. Before I had established a relationship with them, uh, it was um, the DBs were playing. Uh, and it was like the reunion show of the DBs. And three of the four members of the band were really, and NYC Taper didn't exist at this point. This is probably 2005 or so three of the four members of the band were like pro taping, but there was one guy who didn't, wasn't into it. And, and, and that message was, I mean, like really, really not into it. And that message was sent out, I guess, to security. And um, I had like my microphone set up and uh, security like busted me. Wow. I said, no, can't do it. You're going to have to check that. Not a lot. I mean, they weren't physical. It wasn't like, it wasn't like a Montreal where they surrounded me with a bunch of early security guys. This, this is like just, you know, a tap on the shoulder, the, the, the proverbial tap on the shoulder kind of thing. And then I put my equipment downstairs and checked it and watched the rest of the show. Um, that was the only time I've ever been, um, as far as I know, I, that's my only memory of having been busted stealthing. Wow. I was, I've been, the few times that I've done it, I haven't done it much I'd say the last time I stealth is probably five years ago, but I would say that in the last 10 years, I've stealth maybe a half a dozen times. Um, So not much. And I got pretty good at it after a while. So, you know, the the good ones get, get really good at it. So, but I wasn't, I wasn't one of the good ones. I was one of the sort of semi-regular ones, but. I won't ask you to reveal all of your uh, stealthing secrets here on, on, on the. Yeah. Like I said, I don't really do it. So maybe I'm behind the times a little bit. The, 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 bigger, the bigger issue was getting the equipment into the venue. There was one concert. It was Roger Waters at the, um, the, the Meadowlands in 2007, I think. Six or seven. I think it was six or seven, whenever it was. And um, they were doing the full body cavity. Like, oh, gosh. The, the, you know, the, the thing. Like, not, 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 not like touching anybody, yeah. but they had the, the little wand. So they were wanding everything. And I was like, oh shit, I'm not gonna be able to do this thing with so I had a leather, an old leather jacket I was wearing, and it had like a hole in the pocket. And in the and I could put the I could go into the lining. And so I put the deck 
in the lining all the way around to my back. So it was at the small of my back. So they wouldn't actually, they were doing the, the one on the left side and the right side. They weren't doing it on the back. So I actually got the deck in. Wow. Which, <laughs> which I, you know, it was, it was kind of a, a momentary bit of brilliance that, that worked out. That's awesome. You know, it's much better to tape shows with permission so you don't have to deal with nonsense. Absolutely. So 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dan, uh, as we finish up, is there anything you want to pitch? Anything you want to push people to? What can, I, what can I pitch for you? Well, I mean, as you can see, this, this site is not all that active. Um, we've done, what, maybe, where we may, we've done maybe 10 shows this year. So, I mean, compared to the old days, that's, that's a week's worth of shows. Um, I would just encourage people to visit the website, to go back in the archives. Uh, it'll take a little bit of searching. Uh, for a while, we were keeping records of every show that we did based on the year, and you could just scroll down. Um, there's a lot of great stuff there. I mean, some of it, there's a lot of stuff there that's at this point pretty obscure and maybe wasn't that good to begin with. But there's some great stuff there from, you know, over the last 15 years. And um, it's still there. I mean, you can still download it and read about the show and, and, uh, and experience it. So I would encourage people to continue to visit the archive. Um, you know, I feel like it's, it's, in, it's an important piece of musical history. Uh, and I mean, just from a personal standpoint, you have some really great Chris Forsyth shows yeah. on there. Just so if somebody's looking to explore, you got some good ones on. Yep. There. Uh, so just a, maybe a place to start yep. for someone. So, well, Dan, I appreciate you taking the time today. It's been great talking to you. Uh, thanks for jumping on the show today. Hey, no problem. Appreciate it. I'm Lance Ingram, and this is yesterday's concert. Thanks for tuning in to another show. Sources and more information on today's show are available on our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. While you're there, check out some old episodes or connect with us on Twitter at ConcertPod or on Instagram at yesterdaysconcert. And until next time, take care of your shoes. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
PantheonPodcast.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.